Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis, and I am your host uh, for this podcast. Unfortunately, today, we do not have the lovely voice of Ethan Bellamy. He is actually in North Carolina uh, visiting his folks, so he will not be with us on this recording today. So this is going to be me, Trisha Curtis, running it solo. I had a podcast, the Petroners podcast, uh, back in the day before it was hosted on the Digital Wild Counter platform, and I did it solo. It wasn't nearly as fun without a, without a co-host and back and forth, but it was uh, e- filled with equally as nerdy of content. So bear with me, folks. There's a ton of information that we are going to slug through today. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have Ethan to keep the guardrails up, so we'll see how this one goes. But today is August 17th. It is Tuesday. It is about 1.30 in the afternoon, and WTI is just under $67 a barrel. Um, this is your episode 25 of the Petronas podcast, and we are going to go through oil markets and prices, um, oil prices, inflation. We're going to talk about the International Ed- Energy Agency's report. We're going to talk about OPEC. Uh, and we're going to talk about the uh, China's this the article from the Financial Times on on China's coal p- fired power plants, and we are also going to talk about the White House press briefing um, and the comments made on inflation and OPEC as well. So a lot to cover, and we'll go through this in a in a relatively timely fashion. But you know, Ethan has pushed me on on previous podcasts to talk about a price forecast or range that we do weekly, and I think a couple weeks ago before we had Justin Kringstead on the podcast talking about the Wilson Basin um, and North Dakota Pipeline Authority, we had talked about the $65 to $75 range that I had basically said that I, I thought was was accurate for, for oil prices. And I we've stayed in that. I hate to say I'm right, but I think this, um, obviously, with concerns of the Delta variant and inflation um, and in, inflation concerns have helped weigh on the dollar and the value of the dollar. So that this certainly helped um, that has certainly helped initially pressure some on oil prices. And then we've had a lot of renewed concerns and, and increased concerns on the Delta variant. A lot of that has been start, has been coming out of China um, and it's it's multifold out of China. And um, part of that's because they have uh, the continued crackdown on the economy, whether it's through the tech sector or now getting into the um, video gaming. But there's a number of things um, that are being cracked down. And so there's a little bit of hesitancy, I think, overall on the on the Chinese economy, which is weighing on oil prices. And then there's additional hesitancy related directly to the to, to COVID and the Delta variant. And that's because China saw some initial cases. And so they've taken a very strong approach to basically crack everything down and to shut everything down and um, to test a bunch of people. So when we saw prices slipping, you know, part of that was because uh, they had done a lot of testing in Wuhan, which was the original outbreak of the virus. And they had shut down a lot of flights, uh, a lot of domestic flights. So there was uh, a lot of initial concerns about um, domestic consumption in China coming down. So that was a big thing that's been weighing on the oil market. And then a number of other things um, have been weighing on the oil market. And that is that is the consumer, you know, we just had retail sales actually out um, in the US. And you've seen that the Dow is down a little bit today um, and the market's down. And that's because retail sales have, were lower than expected. We have had reports from um, cons- consumer reports. I don't know if you saw the uh, Reuters article that said dollar languishes near one week low after consumer sentiment low blow. So dollar, um, you know, obviously oil prices are inverse to the dollar. So we had the dollar languishing, which did help support prices a little bit. But this weak consumer sentiment is something to think about. And we have seen weak consumer sentiment in the last few weeks. And so it was at all-time highs. And in tandem with that, 
we have seen inflation. So the Consumer Price Index, which the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out with, showed some pretty uh, stellar numbers for inflation. And those numbers, actually, you can play around on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, which is very good. And you can play around with the numbers. But the overall takeaway is that prices have continued to rise. And they they didn't rise to the level people thought they would in July. So they weren't quite the same um, breakneck pace that, that they were from May and June, um, but they rose nonetheless. So month over month, we saw continued rise um, for inflation. And overall, actually, when you look at all items, less food and energy, we're up um, well over 4% on uh, on looking over a 20-year horizon. We're up um, over 4 We're basically 4.5% for inflation. So huge numbers that we saw on, on used auto sales on basically 41% increase there. Obviously, massive increases for energy when it comes to natural gas and oil that have been a factor. And this, I think, actually taken together, and this does weigh on the oil market as a whole, I think taken together, it's really important to think about inflation. Um, and that consumer sentiment. And something that I think, um, which we'll get into this shortly, is the the White House press briefing. So when the White House press secretary, Jen Paskey, on August 11, talks about, she talks about a number of different things and goes through it, but she does get into inflation and she downplays it. And I think um, something that people aren't taking into account is the, the number of things that are coming together on this, which is consumer sentiment. And consumer sentiment, I think, is is waning or at least coming down a little bit because inflation is hitting people. So if you've been to the grocery store, if you've filled up your vehicle, you are absolutely feeling it. There's no there's no way around it. You're not feeling it. And we're seeing it from everything to, from Chipotle to restaurants. Um, it, that's if you can even get a reservation at a restaurant because things are so busy. But the point is, is that we have we very much have very real inflation in the U.S. And uh, what's what's we're sort of adding fuel to the fire because uh, the uh, Unemployment benefits are are set to roll off in September, so we may see some, you know, some alleviation to some of these pains that people are feeling from a from a labor perspective and from a wage wage price and inflation perspective. But we also have these checks, these stimulus checks that are going, and not stimulus checks. They're basically the child tax credit that people would normally get in the form of a tax credit. They're getting in the form of checks uh, per child. So we saw that come out basically in July, and that helped prop up a lot of spending, which you know, for those families was probably good, but it definitely has helped also fuel this fire on inflation. And we're also seeing, um, you know, the the concerns about inflation going forward are really a lot of the stimulus, the initial stimulus package that was passed, but now all the this infrastructure bill, if, if fully passed and signed, you know, has a lot of entitlement programs in it, which, you know, pre-COVID and, you know, at the beginning of COVID, when folks talked about all the stimulus measures that, that we were doing and throwing everything in the kitchen, kitchen sink at this, the reason it was positive and the reason people were, were not concerned about inflation and long-term impacts of it was because it didn't include long-term spending. So it wasn't entitlement programs themselves. So folks were not concerned. Um, a lot of economists were not concerned at the time that we would have lasting inflation and repercussions. And same for 2008. We didn't really have lasting inflation and repercussions because we didn't have entitlement programs. Now, these entitlement pr- programs are, you know, do have elements that we, you know, resemble socialist governments in um, in Europe. And so we're certainly seeing that in some of these infrastructure bills from, you know, healthcare and education and things, that those are long-term lasting spending and that will actually impact overall inflation. So that's something to keep in, in into mind. And I think overwhelmingly, as inflation and consumer sentiment, you know, as inflation rises and doesn't go away um, and consumer sentiment declines, all that impacts, that will impact overall and can impact overall on oil demand. Now, we, we talked about the, the China piece, which is very, very relevant and real, but it's also going to impact oil demand in the U.S. for sure if everything is to slow down. So 
we're going to switch gears now. And again, I don't have Ethan here keeping the guardrails up on this. So, um, you know, oil price has obviously been muted. Uh, we big concerns with the Delta variant and going around the world. And, you know, the IEA, though, and so the IEA has changed course pretty quickly in terms of how they're thinking about this. Okay, so the, the IEA has their monthly oil market report, and this came out August 12th. And they said that, uh, you know, oil demand surged by 3.8 million barrels per day month on month in June, led by increased mobility in North America and Europe. However, demand growth abruptly reversed course in July and the outlook for the remainder of 2021, quote, this is, and I'm quoting here, has been downgraded due to the worsening progression of the pandemic and revisions to historical data. So they had actually revised 2019 data down um, below 100 million barrels per day. So that was part, some of the revisions. And it's something that we've actually talked about previously in the podcast on the color that we have on demand data. And if you look at EAA, you know, U.S. demand data, it has come down in, in the recent weeks. So we saw that massive spike at the beginning of July, well over 21 million barrels per day um, for, for U.S. product demand. And then it's since come down. Um, part of that's obviously summer, you know, summer season and waning um, and, and folks, you know, looking to get back to work and, you know, Delta concerns as well as consumer sentiment, I think, and overall inflation, I think simply costing more. But the the point I, I make to this is that the only place that we have the greatest color in the in the world is the U.S. in terms of actual consu- actual demand data, and so it takes it can take years to actually revise the data and know what it was. So when we think about you know prices moving up and down on demand concerns and fundamentals, it 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 is um it, it's not perfectly clear in any place outside the U.S. on what those actual supply and demand numbers are. Uh, furthermore, so the really interesting thing is that. Um, the IEA cites a couple things. And, you know, there was the Middle East Economic Survey pointed out that the International Energy Agency is uh, is warning of oil glut and they're calling for. Um, so basically, the IEA warns of oil glut and this is simultaneous why the U.S. is calling for more oil. So this is a little fascinating. And, and we'll get into this when we talk about the, the White House press briefing um, and the call on, you know, the call on OPEC by the U.S. to actually increase output. Um, partly because we are seeing this inflation and, and oil prices are a big component of that. So the International Energy Agency, in their report, they talk about you know the the OPEC deal being struck, and essentially something that they echoed in the in their last month's report as well is that how how close things are. So you're pretty close to being oversupplied, and you're you're relatively close to being undersupplied. But they're essentially warning that whilst we'll be you know, we'll be in line or we'll be undersupplied throughout this year, we could easily be oversupplied next year. And that's because as these concerns right now with the Delta variant coming online and prices are waning a little bit, we are seeing these supplies come online. And, you know, if you're looking at the actual OPEC numbers, so if we look at the numbers from, so if we look at the actual OPEC numbers from OPEC's re- monthly report that they put out as well on, um, and they put out this mid-August, this, their OPEC numbers, they're showing OPEC, production at nearly 27 million barrels per day. So it's 26.657 million barrels per day for OPEC production. That is, um, compare that to, you know, 26 million barrels per day in June and 25, um, less than 25.5 million barrels per day in May. So we've seen a significant increase. Now, um, IEA points out that these quota increases have gone up, right? So or the baseline numbers have gone up. So there was a baseline increase for the United Arab Emirates to 3.5 million barrels per day beginning in April 2022. So remember that this OPEC agreement was actually extended after we had all the, you know, hurrah, you know, back and forth and everything in, in July and end of June and July. The agreement was actually extended through the end of 2022. However, that part of that means that that um, these baselines were increased in beginning April 2022. So the United Arab Emirates baseline is increased 
um, being at 3.5 million barrels per day. Their baseline is in April. And um, both Russia and Saudi Arabia's increased baseline is 11 million barrels per day. Um, so they've increased significantly as well. Doesn't mean they will ne necessarily produce that. But we did see Saudi Arabia. So they went from 8.9 million barrels per day of production in June to a whopping 9.4 million barrels a day production in July. So they brought that they brought that million barrels a day back that they've been holding off. So Saudi Arabia is at 9.4 million barrels per day. Uh, Iran, just for perspective, is at 2. Uh, almost 2.5 million barrels per day. So they're they're coming up a little bit. They were you know 2.44 million barrels per day in May. So they've come up a little bit. They're nearly 2.5 million barrels per day now. So everyone's sort of slowly adding to the market. The UAE has also increased output. You know, they were under two point, just shy of under 2.7 million barrels per day last month. They're above 2.7 million barrels per day now. So look, all these, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 barrels a day for these smaller countries, but they're all adding up. So, you know, that's OPEC production. Supply is being added to the market. And that is in the same time that, you know, and this isn't the podcast we're going to do it, but I will be going through, you know, U.S. production um, and U.S. The rig count has continued to rise. We saw that Baker Hughes showed that the 10 rig additions, we see a, a higher rig number, obviously, within various uh, data, if you look at it. So rig counts are continuing to rise across the country. Haynesville, Permian, you see it. And we're seeing a lot of holes being punched into the ground in the U.S. And we are seeing definitely a massive flip in bifurcation with private operators and public operators. And we will be getting into this on a, in a separate podcast, but I think it's extremely relevant to note that some of the major themes and trends in, in the earnings season from Exxon to EOG is really how fast you're drilling these wells, how fast they're completing these wells, the rapid increases in, you know, or the rapid changes and, you know, drilling la longer laterals. So Exxon makes a point to talk about how they, they need far fewer, less rigs than they did before. Obviously, that's because they went from, you know, 55 rigs to eight rigs now in the Permian Basin. And so they're, they're justifying that to some degree, but they're also explaining that their speed in which they're drilling is so much faster and the lateral lengths are so much longer. And I mean, for perspective, we are drilling 11,000 foot laterals in the in the Midland Basin. Over oh, the average lateral feet in the Midland Basin is over 11,000 feet. So you're well over two miles now. So that's just something to to keep in the back of your mind that you know it, it is not just OPEC that's adding some of these barrels back. The U.S. is going to begin to be adding barrels back as well, and that is something that the Energy um, the EIA the Energy Information Administration has cited as well. In addition to the IEA, um, and that U.S. production isn't it's not coming back in gangbust speed, but it is coming back. So when when IEA talks about this, this their concerns that they're having, they basically say, you know, quote, but the scale could tilt. So they essentially say, you know, right now we're we're undersupplied, and you know, as these you know these countries are adding barrels back, it's sort of working with the concerns with the Delta variant. So things are sort of going to be in line for the, and they actually show for the third and fourth quarter of this year, they show supply and demand perfectly in line in their chart. They say, quote, but the scale could tilt back to surplus in 22 if OPEC if OPEC plus continues to undo its cuts and producers um, and producers not taking part in the deal ramp up in, in response to higher prices, following a modest increase of 600,000 barrels a day on average in 2021. Supply from the outside group is forecast to expand by 1.7 million barrels a day next year, of which the U.S. will account for nearly 60%. So they're saying the U.S. is going to add production, and this is sort of weighing. And then this is where this is important, um, and, and it is really relevant, because we've talked about the International Energy Agency's, um, the IEA's, uh, you know, net zero report that they talked, which is this roadmap. And we talked about how when it first came out, it was really um, talked about as a as a important thought piece and that it was done on the request and at the president of the UK COP26 to the IEA. And he, they did this thought piece, which that 
that net zero report basically asked and said that you had to stop using, stop um, in, investing in fossil fuels immediately. So it is interesting, and this is the very beginning of this, this is only page three of the International Energy, this is our monthly oil report, says that, quote, it's not just that the oil market needs to be brought into balance. The world oil industry is struggling to find new business models to navigate the energy transition as outlined in the IEA's net zero by 2050 roadmap, while still meeting sustained oil demand. The recent UN International Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, report confirms the urgent need for greenhouse gas reductions. It is vital to tackle these challenges as swiftly as possible to ensure an orderly path to carbon to a carbon neutral world. Now, that's really tricky because within that, they're basically, so they're citing, you know, the IPCC re report came out, basically said everything is, you know, very bad. Um, and I'm, I'm sure the Energy Transition podcast has done probably a pretty good job covering that. We will get into that, but not in this podcast covering that. So that big report came out last week from the IPCC and so they're commenting on this and they're noting this. So they're referencing a, you know, their roadmap report on net zero emissions, but that was a thought piece. And yet they're referencing it within this context. So the, the trouble I have with that is it's really tricky, right? It's that, you know, you're wrestling with, they're not giving an answer. They're not saying reduce demand tomorrow or, and, and stop producing. And there really is, there's really no good answer there. And that's what the Middle East Economic Survey sort of points out in this, um, which is contradictory, is in this, that their title of their article um, in last in their um, August 13th weekly survey or weekly um, report that they put out says, quote, the title is IEA warns of oil glut, semicolon, U.S. calls for more oil. And there is a lot of irony to this. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that prices cooling off somewhat have helped, you know, make the administration feel a little bit better in the U.S. because oil prices have come up considerably um, and they have a we, we have a, a continued ban on federal leasing in the U.S. And this is where things get really interesting this week, because um, I, you know, I actually decided to go ahead and read. There was a lot of stuff coming out of the White House and in politics, and there's so much happening in the oil market right now. But there was a lot of talk, obviously, on OPEC and what the administration has said on OPEC and calling on OPEC to actually increase output. There was a response by Canada as well, and we're going to get into that now. Okay, so the White House um, had a press briefing. So the press briefing of Press Secretary Jen Paskey had on, this is dated August 11th. So I actually read this um, because I had, you know, seen and heard the, the commentary that had come out on, on the OPEC comments, especially from Canada, with regards to the U.S. calling for more output. So needless to say, inflation and OPEC are talked about quite a bit in this press briefing, um, which I'll, I'll read to and insight from. So I read through it, and then I also watched it. But on, um, on August 11th, we also had a statement by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, on the need for um, on the need for reliable and stable global energy markets. And I'm going to read this out loud in case you um, haven't logged into the you know, whitehouse.gov and looked at it. But basically he says, this is, quote, higher gasoline costs, if left unchecked, risk harming the ongoing global recovery. The price of crude oil has been higher than it was um, at the end of 2019, before the onset of the pandemic. While OPEC Plus has recently agreed to production increases, these increases will not fully offset previous production cuts that OPEC Plus imposed during the pandemic until well into 2022. At a critical moment in the global recovery, this is simply not enough. President Biden has made clear that he wants Americans to have access to affordable and reliable energy, including at the pump. Although we are not a party to OPEC, the United States will always speak to international partners regarding issues of significance that affect our national economic and security affairs in public and private. We are engaging with relevant OPEC members on the importance of competitive markets in setting prices. Competitive energy markets will ensure reliable and stable energy supplies, and OPEC Plus must do more to support the recovery. So this is the U.S. White House, the 
the Biden administration calling on OPEC to increase output because they are seeing pressure in prices. Now, I am it is not a stretch to say that this is these this these price increases um, and inflation in the U.S. in particular is what's driving this. So it is not just oil prices. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts. I've talked about this a lot in presentations and, and commentary and talking with folks on the phone and, and in the industry. This is one of the first times we've seen, especially in my lifetime, um, in the past 20 years that we've seen inflation, high inflation, so high food prices, high um, high cost of living, um, a high cost of you know wage increases in tandem with high oil prices. So we didn't have these levels of inflation necessarily all, for all components when we had seen really high oil prices before. And so I think these two things are really weighing and they know, the administration knows that this is definitely going to impact um, consumer sentiment. Um, and it's definitely going to impact actually how people feel about the administration, and how well they're doing. So that was a plea by our national um, secretary, um, advi- our national um, security advisor, Jake Sullivan, on the need for reliable and stable global energy markets. Now, certainly there's a response in the press briefing, which we'll get into because it was talked about, OPEC was talked about quite a bit at length. So the, what was also interesting is the Alberta government, if you go on their website, alberta.gov, you'll see that uh, they said, you know, they, their title says, U.S. plea for more oil production. Um, this is Minister Savage. So Ministry of Energy, Sonia Savage, issued the following statement in response to the White House calling on OPEC plus to boost oil production. And Quote, she says, the Biden administration pleading with OPEC to increase oil production to rescue the United States from high fuel prices months after canceling the Keystone XL pipeline smacks of hypocrisy. Keystone XL would have provided Americans with a stable source of energy from a trusted ally and friend that adheres to the highest ESG standards in the world with industry commitments to net zero production. Had pipelines not been politicized by opponents of oil and gas, Keystone XL would have been operational for years and reli- rel- and reliably delivering nearly one million barrels a day of, of oil, one million barrels of oil every day to American refineries. The Biden administration's plea for more oil confirms that there will continue to be demand for Canada and Alberta energy and highlights the need for affordable and reliable energy as the world seeks to lower emissions. This is despite a deliberate push from our federal government to transition away from oil and gas. Alberta's government will continue to push for new pipelines and new markets to support the industry, the jobs, and the prosperity it creates. The bottom line is the world needs Alberta's energy. Albertans own the the third largest oil reserves in the world, and our industry is at the forefront of innovation and technology to reduce emissions and produce oil with the lowest carbon footprint. That's why we're all. That's why we are well positioned to meet global demand and support a post-pandemic economic recovery. We look forward to the Biden administration's continued support for an integrated North American energy market in the months ahead, which will create jobs and prosperity on both sides of the border. So this is absolutely relevant. And it, it it's beyond smacking of hypocrisy. I mean, the we've discussed the hypocrisy of this administration on energy um, at length in these pre, in, in podcasts. But you cannot say yes on Nord Stream 2, which is the ga- you know gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. You can't say I'm OK with that. You can't cancel Keystone Excel the first day you're in office. Cancel that actual permit from an ally. Um, and in places in the U.S. and in Canada where you know you can actually impact, um, you, you can actually impact GHG and ESG more in these countries with rule of law than you can in places like China in the Middle East. So the, it's beyond hypocr- hypocritic um, of this administration to come and call out on OPEC to actually increase output, especially in light of the fact of canceling Keystone Excel, which I think the the ministry, um, the minister does a fantastic job of explaining all of that and saying, essentially, you know, why wouldn't you allow this production coming from Canada? So you did that day one, and now you're calling for increased output. And in addition to that, 
which the, the press briefing does not get into. But in addition to that, we have a continued ban on federal leasing on U.S. federal lands that they, that was put in place um, by the Climate Change Executive Order 14008. And that is, you know, that's is beyond hypocrisy hypocritic to say we have a ban on leasing in the U.S., but we're asking other people to increase it. And so the White House's response to this, um, and this does, you know, this was talked about at length. And I'm going to also talk about the piece on inflation because, you know, you if you're interested, you should take a listen to the, you can find it on YouTube and listen to the whole thing. But if you read it, um, there are a number of things I will not get into, but I, I, I think these are just two of the many things that this, uh, this, this woman has, um, has, very much inaccurate, if not completely wrong, and is actually lying to the public about. Okay, so we'll get back to the inflation piece, but here's the first part on OPEC. So uh, Jen gets a question, you know, the, the, pre the press secretary gets a question, and, and it says, Jen, a question on, about OPEC. The White House is pressing OPEC to produce more oil. Have you gotten a response from Saudi Arabia about that request? Ms. Paskey. Well, first, I would say this is this is just an outreach that's just happening over the last couple of days. But it's also ongoing and something that isn't new. As of today or even as of yesterday, we've had ongoing engagements. I know we we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago when we were especially concerned um, or where there where their OPEC discussions with OPEC member countries happening, even though um, we're not a member of OPEC. So the steps were announced this morning which include, as you referenced, Jeff, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan putting out a statement about White House officials um, are, are continuing their engagement with relevant OPEC members on the importance of competitive markets and setting prices and doing more to support the recovery. It also includes a letter that was sent from the um, from our NEC director, Brian DC, on the um, to the FTC to consider dash encourage them to consider using all the available tools to monitor U.S. gasoline markets. So they're clearly concerned about inflation. And I'll reference back because they mentioned inflation right before we get into this. And this is a component of this. Uh, she goes on to say, so this is not meant to be for immediate response necessarily. It's meant to be a long-term engagement, consistent long-term engagement as we work to address not just anti-competitive behavior in, in the United States, but in the global marketplace as well. And also taking steps that we feel are prudent to keep gas prices down for the American public. So she's not addressing directly that they called on OPEC to increase output and keep opening the tap so that oil prices will be low um, for the and, and abundant for the global market. Um, not addressing at all that they've reduced production that, or they're trying to re actually reduce output into in, in the U.S. Um, the question goes on to say, I have a broader question on the theme. How do you square, how does this White House square a push for OPEC or Saudi Arabia to increase production of oil, which is a fossil fuel, with your climate change agenda, which is basically to get away from fossil fuels. And uh, the press secretary responds with, well, first, I'd say, Jeff, the experts, experts, she doesn't say which experts, she just says, experts have consistently debunked the notion that efforts we're undertaking to transition to net zero by 2050 and a clean power sector by 2035 are related to domestic production at home. I would just note, I know that's that wasn't exactly your question, but I wanted to get that in there. So I'd love to know what expert she's referencing that reference and cite that plans to reduce production at home um, don't impact oil and gas prices in the U.S. and abroad. So plans to reduce production at home don't impact that. So she's conflating or convoluting or basically not telling the complete truth here. Um, and I think, I mean, the way she this was touted and pushed was kind of unbelievable. She goes on to say, our view is, one, that there are steps OPEC can take. What we're... What we're raising here, as we've raised in the past, production and the need to increase production, as you've said, to make sure we have that available to help address the price of gas. 
We're also talking, though, more importantly, about the competition and about ensuring that pricing on the global market is something that is aligned with what is fair and what is competitive as well. So we're talking about a number of steps, not just one. But I'd also like to note that what we know that they have supply that's available, that can be accessed, and that's what we're really referring to here. So the problem with this is that we have the production. So we have access. So we shut down, you know, we shut in 2 million barrels a day of production, roughly, you know, a few million, a couple million barrels of production that's slowly, or, or, or probably, we probably shut in about a million barrels a day of production. And we lost production again in, uh, we lost production again in, uh, in February of this year when we shut in production because of these storms or they were forced shut-ins. So the problem is, is that we have these, we're recovering from that, right? We're recovering from a massive jarring in oil price. We have this massive recovery. And we also have this problem with, you know, we aren't, we didn't allow for Keystone Excel. So we're not allowing um, production in, in Canada to actually flourish and come down to the U.S. And we're nearly self-sufficient in oil and gas production and use from Canada and the U.S. alone. We were nearly self-sufficient, at least pre-COVID and during COVID, especially with demand coming down. So but she's concerned that oil prices, you know, she and the White House are concerned that oil prices are going up. And that's obviously going to impact how people view um, the favorability of the administration and of the president. Um, and so it's it's beyond hypocritic to be pushing a their climate change agenda um, to not be producing, to re be reducing output in the U.S. through a con continued ban on federal leases, which has been deemed illegal by courts, but they've continued this ban. They, there's no end in sight yet. Um, they're still waiting on 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 announcing something of uh, probably an increased royalties and a number of things that we've talked about before. Um, so that's just a reality there. I'm going to back up uh, just a second and to put this in context to talk about inflation, because before that question on OPEC, there she is asked about inflation and she does the same thing. So where she inserted the thing on, on, on where she inserted the thing that what they're doing is not counterproductive. So basically, and as experts have consistently debunked the notion that efforts we're undertaking to transition to net zero by 2050 and a clean power sector by 2035 are, are related to domestic production at home. I would just note, that's what she says. So she's saying they're not contradictory. To basically reduce, to go green in the US is not contradictory um, to actually, um, is, is it contradictory to these rising prices? And they actually are contradictory because if you're reducing, if you're reducing output, but you're still consuming it, those, those are going to go in line. Um, so when she's asked about inflation a little bit earlier in the press briefing, someone says, um, and one more question, what is the president's reaction to the jump in consumer prices? And what is the level of concern today now seeing those numbers with inflation? So she says, well, Caitlin, this is the press secretary responding. She says, well, Caitlin, if you actually look at the numbers and the trends over the last several months, it shows that core inflation, one, was not only below expectations, but it decelerated from last month and even from the month prior. So over the last couple months, we actually saw it trended downward over the last three months. And that is an encouraging sign. We also continue to believe that as the economy turns back on and as people are, as businesses are starting to move and as the supply and as demand starts to change the economy, that there will be transitory impacts as it relates to inflation. These, those are projections that have been made, of course, not just by the Federal Reserve, but by the CBO, Goldman Sachs, UBS, Moody's, and others. They've also predicted that, that the inflation will come down next year and that those are pr projections that we have, we, that we abide by. So- it's it, it it's beyond smacks of 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 hypocrisy as as uh, minister savage from canada said because you can't you can't be that concerned about oil prices and gas prices if you're not concerned about inflation so 
that's one piece of this. So they're, they are getting concerned. And uh, by the way, many, many economists, all you have to do is listen to CNBC and Bloomberg, and you will hear plenty of economists who, and plenty of industry leaders who are massively concerned about inflation. All you have to do is listen to earnings calls in and outside of the oil and gas industry that talk about wage inflation, uh, on, in the inability to get employees to work for them, the inability to get part-time employees. I mean, massive impacts of inflation into the entire sector of the, uh, uh, across you know the value chain in the US economy. So it is a very very serious issue. She's downplaying it. I don't know if she has not been to fuel per vehicle or if she has not um paid for groceries recently, but she would see them. And if you play with the consumer, you know, we reference inflation and I showed I explained those numbers of four and a half percent. So when you take out, you know, oil and energy, if you take out energy, it's still very very high inflation and the reality is it's it's month over month. So I, she's she's um, playing up something that people talked about. And I think the concerns were that we were going to have a higher month over month increase on inflation for the month of July. Uh, it actually came down. I think it was 0.7% increase month over month. And there was a concern that it would actually be significantly higher. Um, the problem, and then we referenced this in previous podcasts, is the problem is that if you are seeing any month over month increase, this isn't some yearly one-off thing. And when they keep saying transitory, it doesn't mean that prices come down. And that's a really big problem and something that, you know, the average American and, and average person in, in the world needs to understand. You see these inflation, are, are, are prices actually going to come down? We, we do see prices, you know, energy prices can come down. Natural gas prices may come down. Oil prices may come down. And you will absolutely feel that at the pump. She references, you know, they don't come down as quickly, et cetera, from refineries. But the reality is, is that when Chipotle raises their prices, they're probably not going to decrease them. And so that 4% increase they have raised on prices you're not going to see a decrease of that. So when they keep saying transitory, they're, you know, not just the White House, but others are telling you this is short term, it's not going to last, and we're not going to see this. It doesn't mean the prices come down, it means they've gone up. And if your wages haven't gone up with it, that's that takes money out of your pocket, that impacts the consumer, and that in tandem will impact economic growth, GDP growth, gross domestic product growth, and that will in tandem impact oil demand. And so inflation eventually takes a real bite and sting. And I think something that you're seeing within China is there are real concerns about that, is that people, you know, it is a regressive tax on the middle and lower incomes that when your piece of your pie of your budget for electricity and um, and gas and gasoline is, is um, that chunk of your budget's higher, when those prices go up, you feel it. And so this is when I mentioned a couple podcasts ago about the potential rate hike in Colorado and for Excel for 13%, that's very, very high. You know, that's it's a dramatic jump um, and speed up in, in these increase in prices. And that's what people are seeing right now. So anymore, you know, we are absolutely seeing pressure. I t I'm talking to folks where I'm from, my hometown, my family in Craig, Colorado. Um, if you look at internet um, EIA data, actually PAD4, which is the Rockies, that's Petroleum Administration Defense District. It's still how we, it's a World War II reference. And it's still how we bucket um, refinery uh, divisions. But PAD4 is the Rockies. And you can see that the massive uptick in, in gasoline prices and diesel prices um, in the past couple months, it's huge. We're, we're nearing $4 a gallon. And people in these, these are lower income areas in rural America, and they are 100% feeling it um, in addition to what they're seeing at the grocery store and how much they're paying. So I'll close that a little bit, but I just want to say I think I think uh, the press secretary is um, out of touch um, with the actual consumer and um, real inflation, and I think it's uh, it's insulting to tell people that you know it's better than expected and it's actually coming down when prices are are probably not going to actually come down, um, and that's a reality. And if they do, that's great. But I mean, it's if the prices come down, it's probably because we're we're dipping into a recession, and that's going to be very very problematic for this administration. Okay, so the last question or last big thing on OPEC that was mentioned in this press briefing before we switch gears and talk about China and coal and close the podcast 
is, uh, so somebody asks, okay, um, basically midway, they ask, can I get back to the OPEC assessment? She says, sure. And sh the question is the timing, of course, in the hours before the CPI announcement. So this is the consumer price index announcement kind of lends an impression or a question whether there's a domestic political lens for you. What, if any, tools do you have to pressure OPEC other than, you know, a letter from Jake Sullivan to actually take steps to increase production? Or is it just the U.S. sort of doing it for political benefit? Because that might be how that might be how they view it. And she responds. So this is somebody saying out directly, OK, you had the consumer price index. Now you've come out and said, OK, OPEC increase output. And she responds, well, we don't see it through a political lens which is just, I mean, I don't care who's in office, um, whether it was uh, Trump or Bush or Obama or now Biden, they 100% view it through a political lens. So she goes on to say, well, we don't see it through a political lens. We believe that one, the president's role is addressing competition, doesn't stop at the border's edge. And while, while we encouraged OPEC, as you know, I know that you cover this closely to take steps or OPEC countries to take steps to increase supply, Back several weeks ago, we believe this needs to be a continuous and ongoing conversation, and we need to elevate the issue in public and certainly in the global community. It's just one step in our toolbox to continue to keep prices down for the public. So there, she's actively admitting that they're 100% advocating OPEC increased production to decrease prices for the U.S. public. And there is a, you know, the response, I think, by the Saudis and OPEC was that they don't see a need to actually do this. Um, the other um, question is, uh, I mean, that's basically the, last, the the main questions on on sort of OPEC, and there's more. It gets brought up several times within this, but I mean, the response by OPEC just to say, yeah, we're not going to do this, or this isn't relevant. I mean, there's a reality that there's uh, the former President Trump actually, you know, he was the one behind the Saudi Arabia and Russia actually speaking um, to, you know, actually create some kind of um, certainty. And when prices were crashing and they were flooding the market, you know, there was a lot of work by the U.S. administration to actually sort of mend fences with these two countries and make sure and to actually change that. And I think there's a, a this is probably a recognition and reality by this administration that they're going to have to, you know, do something. But I'm not sure that Biden has that same kind of relationship or capacity with the Saudis or the Russians um, in this regard. And they are increasing output. Now, if, if that, that output is, has nothing to do with what they ask, um, but I think it's very, very interesting that they would even go out to do this. I, th I think they probably thought that it viewed favorably to the public to be asking OPEC to do this when I think it's probably actually relatively confusing to the public when they're pushing climate change so hard, when they're working on reducing production in the U.S. And why they're willing to spend those dollars on, you know, we're willing to spend our dollars that we make in the U.S. and we're willing to spend them on, on foreign barrels to bring in when we're not willing to produce those barrels at home, which we know we can have a greater impact from an actual carbon emission standpoint. So to me, that's it's beyond um, it, it's it's very hypocritic um, and it's uh, it, it's beyond hypocrisy of this administration on on energy policy. Following up on that, they actually did have a meeting as well. So they actually had a meeting of they have a readout for the fifth National Climate Task Force meeting. It's not very dense. There's not much to it. I'm not even going to bother to go through it. The point is I, I'm flagging it because I know it's going to be relevant. So these are all the meetings that they basically when they did their Climate, you know, the climate change executive order, there was a number of provisions within it to actually have all these reports and these meetings and everything. And so they did basically have another meeting on it was said on the heels, quote, on the heels of the latest IPCC report, the National Climate Task Force met to discuss delivering on President Biden's entire Build Back Better agenda in Congress and driving additional climate ambition. So 
they did actually mention there is mentioning in this of a um, civilian task force. And the reason I thought that was relevant, because it did it did sound uh, more like something I'd read from China than certainly the U.S. So with this readout from the Fifth National Climate Task Force, they talked about this civilian, um, the civilian task force for, for climate change. And I thought, you know, what does that entail? So they're not giving us full readouts. They're not giving us full intelligence on all of this, um, the stuff that they're doing from these meetings. And that I'm looking for more color on because I don't think the American public are aware. And I think um, it's it's also a way to, to spend a lot of money for it to go into certain pockets, into green sectors, and not to be spread necessarily evenly throughout the use economy. And it is certainly, it is certainly if this all goes through and this goes to green sectors and, and tech, it's certainly going to impact in inflation for sure. Um, and the other thing that's, that's super problematic is the cost of it, especially if interest rates are to rise. And you, you, if we have inflation, they have to tamp that. You know, we have, we obviously have inflation. If we have continued inflation. They have to curb that with the Fed has to curb that with interest rates. If those interest rates rise, you know, it threatens a lot of these, uh, not just green tech, but it threatens a lot of tech in general. That's why, you know, Kathy Wood, some of the statements I heard today on Bloomberg, she's talking about doubling down on China or very optimistic on China. And I, I think she's uh, completely wrong there on a number of other facets. And that is a perfect pivot. I don't have Ethan to segue me, but that is a perfect pivot to um, the last thing I would like to talk about, which is China and coal. Okay, so excellent article this week, um, or excellent article over the weekend on that came out August 13th on from the Financial Times on on China and coal. And basically, quote, it, the title is called China Puts Growth Ahead of Climate Surge in Coal-Powered Steel Mills. So essentially, you know, people have been, China says things like we're going to, you know, cap our emissions or, 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 or reduce emissions or begin um, seeing a, a leveling off emissions in 2030. And then they say basically, you know, by 2060, we'll be net zero. And everybody's looking for evidence of that to actually take place. And there is no evidence. All they, you can cite it, you can talk about it. There's a reason that China brought it up. There's a reason why China talked about it and wanted to cite it. It's because they got a lot of credibility for it and they don't have to do anything. Um, they have done absolutely nothing. So when the coverage and reporting of this is, is really poor because it's always on Bloomberg you, at night, you see the flash up that says, oh, you know, China looking to curb emissions, but can't do it because they have to increase output for coal. Um, so essentially, they're talking about the expansion of their coal-powered steel mills um, that they expanded sharply, you know, rose sharply in the first half of 2021, and that that's really showing um, the reluctance by the, um, you know, quote, the government's reluctance to sacrifice industry-fueled growth to achieve its climate goals. And I want to say, you know, okay, we knew that, you know, this is no, this is not a newsflash. I mean, I, I'm glad that this is being reported on and people are seeing this, but if you thought that China was sincere about this, you're, you, you were wrong and this needs to be admitted and understood because if China's not reducing their emissions, then all these local efforts in the U.S., particularly in places like Colorado, where you're doing drastic things to reduce emissions, you know, CO2 emissions do not have borders. And so if China's not reducing the emissions, and it's not to say that, you know, not good for you for, for trying, but it's not going to necessarily have the impact. You're not going to get to those numbers you think. So you may have to take a completely different tactic on how you're going to go about this. So there's analysis that the Center for it's Center for Research on Clean Energy and Clean Air, this is a Finland-based advocacy group that the Financial Times is talking about, basically they found that eight, there's 18, um, 18 furnaces and um, 18 steel-making furnaces and 43 coal-fired power plants that were announced uh, in the first half of this year alone. You know, carbon track, there, there are a number of uh, websites that actually track all this so that you can see it. 
Um, and But this one, you know, there are a number of different agencies that are also doing this as well. So we saw prices of, of steel, you know, prices of steel actually surged um, and they they kind of went back and forth on whether or not they were going to reduce some of these you know, emissions or not. I don't think they were ever sincere about reducing the emissions. And as the prices of steel surged, I think it was important for China to realize that they have to increase output of steel so they can cap inflation at home um, as well. So it's interesting. I mean, it's the article just worth a, a fantastic read, but the, it says, quote, if built, the combined coal and steel projects would emit about 150 million tons of carbon dioxide per year equivalent to the total emissions of the Netherlands. So they are going to build these. So it means that, I mean, these are, this is massive emissions. And the guy from, so the guy from the CREA, um, or the, um, I'm sorry, the, the woman from the CREA, the lead analyst, Lori um, Mil, Milvitra, which I'm probably botching that name, so I apologize, but it's a double quote. So this is quoted within the Financial Times, says, double quote, um, in quote, steelmakers haven't gotten the memo yet on emission reductions. And that's not steelmakers haven't gotten the memo. That's China isn't sending the memo. Everything in China is done on a five-year, is done on the top down. So it's done on a provincial level and down. So if the steelmakers aren't doing it, it's because they don't have to, because they're actually being probably told to ramp up output, not reduce output. So that's something to keep in mind. And it's the second largest source of carbon emissions in China is steelmaking. So this is a really big deal. If you're thinking about, it's just a really big uh, acknowledgement and a reality check that China is not going to reduce emissions. So it goes on to say, and I um, says the the quote goes on to say, double quote, I don't see the maths for getting to carbon peak by 2030 without a 30% reduction from steel. So this means that China, in order to get to their carbon peak, which I was referencing in 2030, that they would have a 30% reduction, one third of their production in steel would have to come down. And I personally, I mean, I've done a lot of research and work on China, and I do not see China at all doing uh, reducing even even by a little bit, but let alone a third, because it would greatly impact their economy. Uh, the other piece that this talks about, so absolutely don't believe that the, the China would reduce steel output if it's going to impact their economy. I don't think they're going to do m many things to reduce emissions because it is going to have a negative impact on their economy. Um, and they're probably, you know, mask the data and just say that they're doing it. Um, but another thing is that they talk about in this article is a separate analysis that Greenpeace did earlier this month, which I will be digging into and it will, um, you know, reference back for you guys so you can you can hear about it. But this was done um, that it showed that the majority of government directed stimulus for coronavirus lockdowns, that the, the direction of this money actually went to traditional in infrastructure projects. So um, projects that would ha would actually increase pollution and output. So the there were only they they say that 60 percent of the new um you know, up to 90% of COVID-19 national relief bonds went toward general infrastructure. 60% um, of new municipal bonds were spent on infrastructure such as construction, and only 15% were actually spent on green or what they say is sustainable or low carbon projects, according to Greenpeace that they found. So that, that's a reality that I think is really real and, and important. To, I think we'll, we'll close on that, but I think that's a an absolutely important reality is that even even as China was saying this and as, as we were touting it globally about, you know, it's important to realize that there's only one country in the world that increased CO2 emissions in 2020, and it was by a significant level, and that was China. Um, so the fact that they only put a little bit of the stimulus money to these these projects is not surprising. Um, and so with that, I would like to close. You've had 47 minutes of me talking straight, which is a lot. Probably have to do play it back on, on a slow speed um, to get all of that. But um, I, I hope the content is to your liking. Today, we, this was Petronas Podcast, episode 25. Your host, Trisha Jean Curtis, um, and CEO of Petronerds. And today is Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. Today, we talked about oil market prices, inflation, International Energy Agency's report, OPEC, 
the White House press briefing that talked all about OPEC and inflation, a lot on inflation, and we closed with China coal. So thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate you listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.